What I mean by a journey into my own roots is really related to uh, the intellectual and emotional uh, travail of studying and writing about my own country. See, when I was a graduate student and I had to pick a subject for my dissertation, I immediately thought that I would write about Haiti. But at the time, and this was in the late 1970s, I was very concerned about the consequences of writing about Haiti and the Duvalier dictatorship. My family was in Haiti. At that time, I intended to go back to the country. And I knew that if I had written about the country, then obviously I would probably be in deep trouble. This was a nasty dictatorship where the idea of criticism was not accepted. So I initially really changed my subject, and I did work on sub-Saharan Africa, and in particular at the initial stages on South Africa and the apartheid regime, and I was mostly interested in the resistance to white supremacy in South Africa with movements like the African National Congress, the Black Consciousness Movement, the Pan-Africanist Congress, and the South African Communist Party. So that was my dissertation subject. But by the late uh, 1990s, the country had had a transition, and I say it's an unending transition to democracy, I decided that ultimately it was time to write about Haiti. And this is why I wrote that first book on what I called Haiti's Predatory Republic. And what I met by uh, my own roots was also related to my personal experience as a Haitian coming from the elite. So this is what I wrote in the book, and I think it's a good thing to read it because it summarizes better than just ad-libbing what I was uh, really trying to get at. And here we go. Born into the Haitian elite and having deep personal ties of affection to it, I am well acquainted with its behavior, mentality, and prejudices. I've been privy to its hidden discourse and know what it really thinks. I have heard its unspoken thoughts. I thus know the chasm separating the words whispered in the intimate salon of Pétionville from those publicly voiced. I am disturbingly familiar with the elite's profound contempt for the peuple. I know it fears democracy, and I know the hostility it harbors towards the full exercise of universal suffrage. It is not that the Haitian dominant class is the most repugnant elite, as the U.S. Embassy would have it. It is simply that if it wants to keep its position at the top of the social pyramid, it has little room in which to maneuver. Under present conditions, democracy, if it has any meaning, would inevitably challenge the structure of power and property rights. And this, the dominant class knows and finds unacceptable. Its behavior differs little from that of any other dominant class confronted by an overwhelming and hostile popular wave. 
Thus, as one member of the old Muleto aristocracy told me, we may be repugnant, but we are not the most repugnant elite. We are equally repugnant. I'm not sure whether Aristide coined the term Tutmun Semun. On the other hand, he popularized it. This was part of his uh, main speech during the election and afterwards. And it's a very powerful uh, slogan. It's a very powerful one because in the context of Haiti, uh, the idea that Tutmun Semun, that all human beings are human beings, is really a revolutionary concept. Because as we know, uh, the vast majority of Haitians were never treated really as uh, human beings. They were totally excluded from the moral and political community of uh, the elite and maybe of the middle classes. So the bulk of the population has been marginalized. So the notion that Tutmun Semun the, the person who comes from the peasantry from a little village is the same as someone who lives in Pétionville or in Kerskov, in uh, the privileged houses of the elite, then that is powerful. It indicates a desire to get things right and to transform the social structure so that Haitians are indeed full citizens that they count as one individual and that the class differences, the racial differences are not what matters. What matters is that every human being is a human being. So in the context of the Haiti uh, of the late 80s, that was revolutionary. And it is still revolutionary because, as we know, the structures of the country have remained profoundly unequal. And in spite of the coming to power of the Lavalas movement, those structures are still very much uh, embedded in the daily livelihood of Haitians. When you look at what's happening now in Haiti, when you look at the proliferation of gangs, at the uh, really very poor population of Haiti that has a hard time, you know, feeding uh, itself and feeding uh, their kids, you really can understand why the idea of Tutmun Semun is such a revolutionary concept and why it is still a very powerful uh, term that many Haitians would like to see uh, really realized in the context of the political and the economic system of the country. The period following the fall of Jean-Claude Duvalier and uh, the Duvalier dictatorship was a period that was indeed full of hopes. And yet those hopes, some 20 years afterwards, were completely dashed. What I mean by that is that in the aftermath of Jean-Claude Duvalier's uh, departure into exile, we had the idea that the country could change and change utterly. 
there was a feeling of extreme hope, exhilaration. I remember talking to Haitians both in Haiti and in the United States saying, this is it, we have a new chapter. This is the moment where the promise of 1804 is going to be finally realized. So we were indeed in a moment of euphoria. Many of my friends, even I, considered going back immediately after the fall of Duvalier in 1986, thinking that we could change the country. And there were significant changes for a short period of time. One has to remember the constitution that was created and elaborated and ultimately voted by the Haitian people. This was really something that was quite remarkable. A very democratic constitution with checks and balances so you wouldn't have, again, an opportunity for a demagogue or a dictator to reassert his or her power. So that was a moment, really, that Haitians cannot forget, that Haitians cannot forget the fervor and the euphoria that had gripped the country. But very quickly, there were warnings that things might, in fact, not unfold as we might have expected. And indeed, there was the first initial election that ended up in a bloodshed. And that was a significant warning. And then we have a number of coups within the coups. And finally, as you know, by 1889, 1990, you have the rise of the Lavalas movement and you have the elections that lead to the ascendancy, not only of Lavalas, but of his charismatic leader, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. So we are, you know, in 1991, and we think that power is going to be completely changed, that the population is going to have a say in its own uh, affairs, that the poor would no longer be as poor, that the elite would have to deal with its exploitative practices, that a moment of genuine democratic practice was going to be generated. And very quickly again, we saw that that was much more complicated than we might have expected. First, there were clearly warnings against the type of reforms that Aristide wanted to implement. Uh, you have calls by the military to calm down, by the elite, that this is not acceptable. But yet, the Lavalas movement move on, and ultimately, those warnings materialize with a very bloody coup that removed Aristide and sent him to exile. So that was the first moment where the hopes were completely dashed. In other words, the expectations, the exhilaration that we had, that was gone. Uh, and yet, uh, there was a struggle to fight against the military dictatorship. Uh, that struggle was a very complicated struggle. And as you know, it ended up in a very paradoxical fashion. Here we had Aristide, who claimed that he was an anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist uh, leader who wanted to empower the people. And who did put back Aristide in the National Palace. That was the United States. That was 
the Marines that had been seen for a very long time in Haiti since the occupation of the early uh, 20th century as a really exploitative and repressive force. So we have that contradiction. A leader who, in fact, says that he's anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, and he comes back to power with the Marines, 20,000 Marines that change the situation and compel uh, the military dictators in Haiti to exit. So that was a very difficult moment, because on the one hand, there was hope that with the reestablishment of the Lavalas movement, then we would have, again, a period of change. But there was a significant price to pay, because Aristide came back, but he had to compromise a lot. In other words, in terms of its economic program, the economic program was nothing but a program of neoliberal uh, economics. So that was a contradiction, a fundamental step backward in terms of changing the country. Then we had the political problems. Yeah, Lavalas movement starts to fragment. People in the Lavalas movement start to be worried about uh, Aristide's tendencies to be a demagogue and to be somewhat of an authoritarian leader. So the very movement starts to fragment. And we see that with the election uh, that happens in 1995, and although Preval, René Preval was elected, things started to fall apart within the Lavalas movement. Because on the one hand, Preval uh, was to a large degree accepting some of the reforms that were imposed by the international financial institutions, the World Bank, the IF, USAID, etc. But on the other hand, Aristide wanted to reestablish his credential as that anti-imperialist leader. And that really fragmented Lavalas. And we see that fragmentation in the five years of René Préval, the forced regime of René Préval, where the government couldn't do much. There was paralysis. There was a, a, a feeling that not, nothing could be done. And there was the beginning of violence in Haiti and kidnappings. That really starts at the very end of the Préval uh, government. <laughs> then we have the elections of 2000, very controversial elections. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there is no doubt in my mind that what, whatever one may think of Aristide, he was the most popular leader at that time, and he won the presidency and would have won the presidency with or without any kind of dubious electoral practices. The problem came in the legislative election where the opponents of Aristide really uh, wanted to say that uh, the Lavalas regime <coughs> had totally corrupted uh, those uh, electoral practices. Uh, that may have been the case, but it was certainly not that which led to uh, ultimately the departure of Aristide in 2004. What you had at that point was a country that was deeply divided between former Lavalas people who had joined with uh, some of the more, if you, I don't even know if you can call it that way, but more progressive members of the bourgeoisie in Haiti and with some other organizations. 
and claimed that uh, Haiti was on the way to another dictatorship, etc. And that group uh, allied itself with the United States and the French uh, to really impose all kinds of problems for Aristide, economic um, uh, restrictions, economic sanctions, etc. And the government of Aristide uh, became, to a large degree, very much uh, like uh, previous governments. There was a significant amount of corruption, uh, nothing that departed from the norm, but it was still uh, becoming corrupt, and people were starting to criticize this. One may remember uh, the great Haitian journalist Jean-Claude Dominique, uh, who was uh, Jean Dominique, who was actually one of the initial supporters of Lavalas and of Aristide, starting to doubt uh, the uh, results of the second coming of Aristide. And that really symbolized the fracture of the left, if you wish, in Haiti, and it created uh, the vacuum within which the uh, opponents, the traditional opponents of, Aris, of Aristide, as well as the international community, uh, really started to uh, sap the foundations of Aristide. And eventually, as you know, uh, the old military came in with the support of the United States, the support of the French, and compelled the departure of Aristide, who left. So you have from 1986 to 2004, a period where you have exhilaration because you have hope, you have the idea that, as, as it were, tout est possible, le monde va changer, and then uh, a series of events that clearly eliminate that hope and that exhilaration, culminating in the very depressing sight that in 2004, when we were celebrating our uh, the, the bicentenary of our independence, the country was taken over by American and French troops for a while, and then by uh, the UN troops. So we have a complete reversal, as it were, of uh, what had been hoped for. And uh, finally, that kind of reversal has generated a sense of cynicism, a sense of despair, so much so that even when you talk to Haitians, uh, the memory of the dictatorship of Duvalier is not as salient. And some people who are not friends of the Duvalier are saying now, well, perhaps uh, we need another strong man. Uh, it, my hope is that we don't go that way, but it really, uh, that, that feeling really generates that sense that things have fallen apart and that uh, the country has not ultimately changed as the people who had overthrown Duvalier, the people who had put Aristide in power in 1991, uh, that all of those hopes, uh, uh, that those dreams, as it were, have uh, ultimately collapsed and that we are now uh, in 2022 really in a nightmare instead of in that kind of rejuvenated society where everyone would be equal and as Aristide himself had hope that tout moon se moon. So this is what I meant by exhilarating and depressing uh, account of that period.
Well, la politique du ventre is, to a large degree, a form of governability that is based on the acquisition of personal wealth through the conquest of political uh, power. In other words, if you are in the government, you are going to use the public institutions in order to enrich yourself. So it's a system where there is a high degree of corruption. Politics is basically then a business. You get into politics in order to make money. So that leads to all kinds of uh, perverse phenomena. In other words, if you have political power, you're expected to steal money in order to govern. And in order to govern by way of spreading, as it were, the corruption. So you buy your adversaries. You literally, obviously, reward your constituency and your friends. So politics is generalized corruption. Now, one of the fundamental reasons behind la politique du ventre is the reality that in very poor countries like Haiti, uh, if you do not come from the uh, privileged wealthy elite, there is virtually no other avenue uh, to acquire uh, wealth. So politics is the sine qua non for acquiring that kind of illicit wealth, on, especially on the part of those who are not part of the uh, elite. Now, the elite itself is totally corrupt because it uses its financial power, its economic power, to put uh, people uh, in position of uh, governance so that their governance will actually uh, respond to their interests. So la politique du ventre is something that leads to what we have called also in Haiti uh, les grands mangeurs. Les grands mangeurs are, in other words, the people who take power, their senators, their presidents, their cabinet members, their mayors, and they become grands mangeurs because their very position allows them to literally steal the public uh, treasury. So this is, in a short way, what la politique du vent is. It's a phenomenon that we find particularly in poor country because politics is the key uh, avenue to acquire uh, that wealth that is so necessary in order to leave wealth. Uh, so uh, la politique du vent leads to a systematized uh, pattern of corruption. And it is something that uh, inevitably leads to cynicism. It leads to a feeling that power is not responsive at all to the needs of the vast majority. And uh, that uh, is uh, a very problematic uh, consequence of la politique du ventre because If you acquire power and you intend to change the system, uh, you're going to be confronted with that reality. 
that to really express power in that context, you need to actually get uh, to the, the public treasury uh, and reward you, friends. It is also something that is important in poor countries in uh, like Haiti because those who come to power, if you look at the elections uh, of the last uh, 30 years or so, they do not usually come from the privileged group. So once they are elected, then the temptation to get uh, the uh, rewards of uh, uh, the public treasury, as it were, are immense. And uh, there is the phenomenon of creating a constituency, of talking about and thinking about the next election that requires a lot of money. So even in Haiti, which is a poor country, to get elected, you need money. And that money traditionally comes from the uh, wealthy elite, but it comes also from the previous acquisition of illicit wealth uh, of the public uh, treasury. Uh, and th that phenomenon is a phenomenon, as I've said, that it tends to be uh, universal in the so-called third world. Uh, the first time I encountered the term la politique du ventre was, was uh, while I was studying uh, sub-Saharan African politics, and it's very similar. You take political power, you take office, you use that office to enrich yourself. And that, in turn, has a very significant and unfortunate consequence. It means that if you have acquired political power, you do not want to relinquish that political power. So you're going to have in the political system a fight literally to the death in order to keep that power or in order to take it away from those who have it. So there is a zero-sum game. Politics is a business. It's a very corrupt business. Now, one can, to some extent, uh, justify this. I mean, if you read, for instance, the early reports of the early period after independence in Haiti, then you have people like Dessalines, like Toussaint, like Pétion, who essentially are saying, well, we can take part in that kind of illicit acquisition of wealth from the public treasury, provided that it does not destroy the country, provided that uh, uh, the treasury is not going to be completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, exhausted by that corruption. But the problem is that once you get into that practice, it becomes, in fact, la machine infernale. You get into power, expectations are that you have to do it if you want to keep it and if you want to reward your constituencies. So la machine infernale is a system that derives, as it were, from la politique du vent. But it has very negative consequences on the morality of politics and on the consequences for the economy of such a, such a system. Because corruption in that system is not really productive. It is simply stealing the money from the public treasury, and that money is, in fact, uh, responsive only to the taxation, in particular, of fairly poor people, 
like in Haiti. So you have a system that rewards corruption, that rewards, obviously, those who, are, who have money, and that punishes those who do not. And the very few who tend to emerge uh, from the generalized uh, poverty that exists in Haitian society usually come uh, uh, to a status of well-being through politics. So elections are, uh, in a peculiar way, a way of exiting your conditions of poverty and making it into the uh, economic system. One further element uh, that needs to be also uh, mentioned is the fact that uh, the cynicism is such that if you acquire political power, expectations are that you are bound to behave in the system of la politique du vent. If you are an honest person, people will look at you and literally uh, decide that, well, this person must be an idiot. They, because the function of political power is, to a large degree, to become a grand mangeur. And when we are talking about grand mangeur, it's not just merely, you know, the idea of stealing, but it's also the image of opulence, of being a big man, as it were. So we have very negative consequences stemming from la politique du vote. And la politique du vote itself is to uh, a certain extent uh, a consequence of the generalized pattern of, po of poverty. So you have kind of a circular, vicious kind of uh, process whereby uh, society is poor, the people who take power use that power to acquire illicit wealth, and that generates systematic corruption, which in turn undermines any type of economic development that might be conducive uh, to a very uh, different political system where la politique du vote is not uh, the, the rule, but the exception. Initially, the notion of politique de doublure uh, was a concept that applied to the racial composition of the government. In other words, uh, the idea was that in uh, Haiti, the elite was, to a large degree initially, was a mulatto elite, and that they ran the show, in other words, that they had political power and economic power, but they needed someone who was not a mulatto uh, to have some sort of un paravent, so some sort of simulacrum that uh, the majority was in power. So you had the black, as it were, government, a black president, and uh, in the background, the people who were really running the show were the mulatos. Now, the politique de doublure changed its meaning with time. In particular, uh, it started to change with uh, the uh, Preval administration because the assumption was that, well, Preval is president, 
but ultimately there is Aristide in the background running the show, pulling the strings from Tabar, and Tabar was the residence, the area where Aristide lived. So uh, while Preval was president, uh, Aristide could actually prevent the implementation of the, uh, if you wish, uh, the uh, programs and the politics that were uh, adopted by the Preval government. And that leads inevitably to a sense of crisis and paralysis, because if you have a power behind the legitimate power, then the legitimate power, if you wish, the elected power, does not have the capacity to implement its program, and the system falls into gridlock and into political paralysis. And finally, there is another element of the politics la politique de doublure, and that is that you may have Haitians who are actually in power, in other words, that you have a, a Haitian president, a, a Haitian government, a prime minister, but ultimately power resides in the international community. And this is something that has become increasingly the case in the last few years. If you look at the government in Haiti, its budget is to a large extent a budget that is uh, subsidized by the international community. You have, uh, with the United Nations, you had the MINUSTA uh, presence. Uh, you had, uh, immediately after the fall of Aristide in 2004, the presence of, Haiti, uh, of French and uh, uh, American troops on the soil of Haiti. So what we are talking about is a government that is composed of citizens of Haiti, but ultimately uh, the people who really have power are the people in the international community, whether it be the United States, the French, the World Bank, or uh, the International Monetary Fund. So uh, it is literally that those who have been elected are really to a large degree, they are puppets of those who control the financial and uh, military uh, institutions of the country. So politique de doublure, to put it very simply, is, is the reality that those who are in the national palace, those who are in parliament, don't have the power to dictate, if you wish, the nature of the policies of the country. They are ultimately uh, decisions that are taken elsewhere. Deshoucage is the Creole word for uprooting. In other words, if you want to put it in French, déraciner. And what was meant by uprooting or déraciner is simply the idea that the deep structures of the dictatorship, in particular what was called Makoutisme and the Makout, as you know, uh, the Duvalier regime relied extensively on a paramilitary group, a civilian militia, as it were, to enforce uh, its dictatorship. So when Jean-Claude Duvalier fell, the idea was that we needed to déchouquer the system. We needed to take apart uh, the macoutisme, the ideology that if you have a gun, then you have power, 
and that you needed also to literally eliminate uh, uh, the Makuts. And there were violent episodes immediately after the fall of uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier, where Makuts were killed in very nasty way. Uh, that was, as it were, popular violent justice. The Makuts were not to be tolerated. So that's one aspect of Deshukaj. The other aspect of Deshukaj was really about the social structure of the country. In other words, that those structures had to be uprooted. And Aristide's slogan that tout moon c'est moon, in other words, that every human being is a human being, that there is equality, applied to that aspect of the Deshukaj, that uh, there was to be uh, an element of redistribution of wealth, redistribution of power, and that the elite would need to accept uh, those transformations. So deshukage was a, a really significant element of uh, the transformation and radical transformation of Haiti that the Lavalas movement had in mind when it took power. Now, one thing is to talk about deshukage. Another is to do it effectively. And what I mean by effectively, what are the best methods, as it were, to deshukage the country? And uh, the Aristide government never had real time to think about those things because, as we know, they were in power for a very short period of time, seven months the first time. So whatever they may have really wanted to do with deshukage never occurred. And when they come back, the idea of deshukage was no longer the main idea behind the Aristide and the Lavalas movement, as we've talked before. So deshukage ultimately uh, succeeded at one level. Uh, most of the Timakut, as it were, Timakutio, uh, were uh, eliminated from the system. But a lot of the big Makut managed to escape, or uh, they uh, remain, as it were, uh, in the country. And many of them were eventually involved in one way or another uh, in the uh, coup. Uh, that was engineered in uh, 2003, 2004 to remove Aristide. So the deshukage uh, did not really function as one might have expected. Another element of the deshukage that didn't change is the mentality, if you wish. And I have another book where I talk about the habitus. And what I mean by that is a word that uh, a very well-known French sociologist uh, put forward to indicate that there is kind of a material tradition uh, that governs, as it were, the, uh, ref the, the reflexes of society, that governs how we think about things. And that habitus for me is the authoritarian habitus. In other words, since the very beginning of the Republic, we've had that authoritarian habitus. And if you have an authoritarian habitus, then it's very difficult uh, to really change the system uh, because you usually fall again into those kinds 
of authoritarian dictatorial reflexes on the part of those who govern. So even when you remove the dictatorship, even when you remove the dictators, uh, the new crowd behaves in some fashion, uh, in, in a very similar way to the previous crowd that had imposed the dictatorship. Dictatorship uh, meant that uh, you, if, if you wanted to the transition to democracy, that you had to uh, deshuke that habitus, that tradition. And uh, Haiti has failed, as we know, to do it. We can see the results up to now, where many of the leaders that followed Aristide, uh, in spite of themselves, tended to have authoritarian uh, reflexes. Fortunately, we never fell completely into a dictatorial regime like the Duvalier uh, uh, period. But on the other hand, uh, we've had problems with elections, we've had problems with uh, terms that were never ending, uh, the opposition thinking that they were always cheated out of power, those who won wanted to win, and not only win, but won but win absolutely. So the uh, kind of instincts that we have in the authoritarian habitus have not been uh, totally removed. They still inform the political system in the country up to this day. Well, the military in Haiti are really the creation of the American occupation in the early 20th century, 1915-1934. When the United States invaded in Haiti, they wanted to impose order. They wanted to settle uh, the country in such a way that there would be a centralization of power in uh, uh, Port-au-Prince. And the best way to do that was to create a military that would enforce the rules of the government. So that's one aspect of it. The other more important aspect is that the Haitian military were to a large degree some sort of uh, uh, link between the imperial power of the United States and Haiti. They were the guarantor, as it were, that uh, the United States' interest in Haiti would prevail. So therefore, the United States would not need to invade again because they had, uh, to a large degree, an institution that was ultimately uh, dependent on its power. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that clearly the military within the local political system represented the repressive power of the ruling groups. In other words, if there were challenges coming from below that were very serious, then the military would repress those challenges and would ultimately, if need be, take power to reestablish the status quo ante. So the military were the major institution defending uh, the elites in Haiti. Now, when Aristide comes to power, the military had not fundamentally changed in terms of that mission. What we see, therefore, is not only that the military supported 
series of coups before the election of Aristide because they feared that uh, the population would ultimately take control of the government if there was indeed a democratic dispensation. So the military were very fearful of anyone who would be elected with a mandate to change the structures of the country. And not surprisingly, when Aristide came to power and started to talk about fundamental change and that tout moon c'est moon, then at that point, the military got scared and the elite got scared. So both the elite and the military decided that it was time to end that experiment. And what we saw clearly was the very bloody coup of 1991. Now, the fundamental transformation that happened after the return of Aristide was the abolition of the army. In other words, when Aristide came back, he decided that you need to stop those military coups. So the military were disbanded, and that was a significant transformation. But it also created problems because the centralized apparatus to establish some semblance of order was gone. And we can see the consequences of that. Now, there is a very fine line, obviously, between a military that serves the interests of the elite on a military that simply serves the interests of the general population. And unfortunately, we never had that military in the country. So the historical roots of uh, the military in Haiti, of the modern military, uh, is re- uh, are deeply embedded in the American, um, American occupation and the creation of an institution that was bent on preserving the interests of the United States in Haiti and on preserving the rule of the elite. Uh, and that is the uh, result of a deeply divided political system where you have a small elite and where you have a large population that is excluded, as it were, from the benefits of full citizenship. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an O. Let's uh, stay on this path a little bit longer. Uh, Tell us more how the Haitian Revolution challenged uh, the West's concept of itself.